a motto of Homeland Security, and if you've traveled on any type of public transportation uh, within the last several years, you'd be familiar with this saying, if you see something, what? Say something. If you see something, say something. The motto of Homeland Security. I thought of this motto when I read the story of the girl in the Bible named Dinah, or as some refer to her as Dina, but I grew up calling her Dinah. The story can be found in Genesis chapter 34, and I won't spend a ton of time in this story, but as I was reading the story, there was something that caught me, a phrase that caught me within uh, the text. And then on top of it, as I was reading some commentaries, and in particular, as, as I read an insight from the new Seventh-day Adventist commentary on the book of Genesis by Jacques Ducan, something that he said in that commentary, I was struck by this idea, if you see something, say something, that, that motto popped into my brain. The story of Dinah is that she is the only daughter of Jacob who also has the name Israel. She is one sister with 12 brothers. That's got to be kind of a hard existence. One sister with, with 12 brothers. She was a young lady when the story occurred. The commentary said that she's probably between the ages of 12 and, and 15 years old. And as they are settling back in the land of Canaan, back in, in what was to be eventually the promised land, Dinah meets a, a Canaanite boy by the name of, of Shechem. We don't know a lot about the relationship, although we do know, the Bible tells us, that at one point, Dinah goes out to meet this young man. They go out to meet one another somewhere. And, and though it doesn't go into to great detail, we know by what the Bible tells us that at some point in their encounter, this event goes in a horrible, horrible direction. Most of our scriptures communicate to us the phrase that Dinah was raped. The word in the Hebrew, however you translate it, is bad. The, the different uh, possible ways to translate this Hebrew word are, are raped, lay with by force, defiled, humiliated, violated. Any way that you translate it, any way that you cut it, what happened to her was Wrong. There was something that took place in this encounter in which things went terribly wrong. And the young girl was harmed. Dinah was harmed. But in that culture, the, the women were of, not of great worth. And so Shechem, the young man that violated, defiled, humiliated Dinah, his, his father, Shechem's father, uh, proposes a business transaction proposes a business transaction to make things right. He thinks, well, our kids, this already happened between our kids. How about we, we, we figure this out to make it, maybe not even right, but make it better for the families. He eventually goes back to the village and communicates somewhat what is on his heart. He says, hey, if we unite with this group, it'll help us economically. It'll help us with money. The brothers, though, Dinah's brothers, want, want none of this. And they deceive Shechem and his family and his tribe. And this ends in the death of a whole, uh, an entire tribe of men. 
There's much commentary that we could make on the entire story, and, and most of the commentaries focus on the reaction of the brothers. Most of the commentaries focus on uh, uh, the reaction of, of, of Jacob after the brothers killed this tribe of men. But there's a line in the scripture that caught my attention, and as we thought about the end it now weekend, as we thought about, about uh, wanting to be a church that opposes violence, interpersonal violence against, against spouses, against boyfriends, girlfriends, against children, as, as, we thought of, as I thought about this story in context of that, the verse in Genesis chapter 34 and verse 5 I'd like us to look at, and if you want to open your Bibles there now, to Genesis chapter 34 and verse 5. And the way the New American Standard Bible, as I was reading through different versions, as, as, as I looked at that version, the way the New American rendered it is what caught my attention. And then as I read Dr. Dukan's commentary on it, I was struck even more deeply. Genesis chapter 34 and verse 5 tells us this. Now Jacob heard that he, that's speaking of Shechem, had defiled Dinah, his daughter. Jacob heard that his daughter had been defiled, that she'd been raped, that, that she had been forced to, to uh, someone had forced her to lay with him, that she had been humiliated, that she had been violated, however you want to translate the Hebrew. Jacob heard this message, that this is what had taken place. The Bible then says, but his sons were with his livestock in the field, and the Bible then says, so Jacob kept silent until they came in. And it was that phrase, and Jacob kept silent, that struck me, that hit at me. And then when I was reading Dr. Dukan's insight, this is from Dr. Dukan's perspective, here is what he wrote. Jacob's sons are more sensitive to the evil action than is Jacob, who remains silent. And if you read the story, you realize that he remains silent throughout the whole thing until the very end. We'll mention that in a moment. He said, Dr. Dukan says, had Jacob responded adequately and joined his son's indignation, he might have tempered their anger and have perhaps avoided their crime. Jacob's silence is thus suspect. Dukan says, betraying cowardice, lack of conscience, or even indifference. The implication of what, of what Dr. Dukan is saying is he's saying, in light of what has happened, in light of the tragedy that has happened, the silence of this, of this father, the silence of this man increased the problem. Increased the problem. In the face of every situation, evil situation, I believe that is always the case. When there is evil and people choose to remain silent, then the problem increases. It never lessens. Now, in certain situations, we are silent in the face of evil. Maybe we're not silent because of what Dukan infers about Jacob because of cowardice or, or indifference or prejudice, but, but, but maybe we're silent. I believe oftentimes we're silent more maybe out of ignorance, and sometimes this ignorance is uh, a selective ignorance. You know the saying, ignorance is bliss. If you're a pastor in here, you probably can relate to this. There's times when I've, as a pastor, thought to myself, ignorance would be bliss. I've said to my wife at times, I wish I did not know about whatever it is. In fact, I'm no longer on Facebook anymore for partly that reason. I don't want to 
know everything under the sun. So sometimes we, we choose ignorance. We choose ignorance, and that's, that's a choice that we make. It's not due to cowardice or, or indifference or lack of conscience, but, but we just say, man, it'd just be better if I did not know. Other times, our ignorance, I mean, our, our, our silence is because there's, there's an ignorance to the issue, and, and we don't believe that there really is as large of a problem as we think there is, or maybe we don't, we don't recognize that, that something is as big of a deal as it might be. I believe in the, in the area of violence and, and domestic violence and, 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 and maybe even slavery within our society that still exists and, and, and the abuse that happens towards children and women and even to men, though to a lesser degree, that, that for many people within the walls of the church, they, they know it's a problem out there, but they don't fully understand that it is as much of a problem in here. And I don't just say that on speculation. I actually say that with some statistics behind, behind this. Um, I have to uh, commend the, the Adventist Review because there are many, many pieces of information that have been written in the Adventist Review about this subject. And, and in one article I was reading, they were talking about the fact that that, that when they surveyed leaders of local churches and, and church leaders, pastors, and local church leaders, they asked them, how large of an issue do you see domestic violence within your church? Do you see this as a large issue? Only 16% of the respondents said that they see this as a major issue within our church context. Yes, it's a problem out there, but within our church context, no, it's not really a problem. Only 16% of them said that they see it as a problem. Well, let us be uh, disavowed of that thought, that it is not a problem even within our own walls. In the same article, there were uh, reports of three different research projects that had been done uh, as a denomination within North America about this issue, about the issue of domestic violence against wives and husbands and against children. And within this article, within the, the scope of these three research projects, projects, and I actually read some things where the Adventist Church has been commended for the way that they have looked at internally some of the issues that are going on within their church, and it's, it's happened at the higher levels, and we need to address it at the local level as well. But within this same article in which the leaders responded and said, no, this is not really a problem within our church, within that same article, the research, the three research projects together showed that 42% of Seventh-day Adventist women report that they have been in some way, at some point, either a current or former relationship, physically abused. And the article defined physical abuse as the verbal threat of physical abuse the actual hitting, pushing, grabbing, or shaking of an individual, having something thrown at you, or the destruction of physical property as a means to intimidate. 42%. Here's the problem. 16% of the leaders say this is a problem within our church. 42% of the women in our church say this has happened to me. This has happened to me. Those two numbers don't jive. With that type of suffering going on, we cannot be silent. We cannot be silent. 
We cannot just speak out against violence and say violence is wrong. That's something that we, we easily can do. We can say violence is wrong and we shouldn't do it. And we should say that very clearly. We should, we should make it very clear and hopefully all of us fully understand that it is never okay, never okay for a woman or in rare cases for a man to be struck or threatened with violence by their spouse, by a, by a boyfriend or by a girlfriend in a violent or physical way. It is never, ever okay to abuse a child. I'm not talking about spanking. I'm not against spanking. But most of us understand that difference. If there is something inside of us that says, okay, I got to hide how I discipline my child for fear that it is wrong, then maybe we need to think about that. It is never okay to abuse another individual. This is sin, plain and simple. But we can't just call something sin. We can't just condemn something as sin. We must not only learn to speak out against sin, but we must also learn to speak up for those who are affected by sin. There's a difference, you know, between speaking out against sin and at the same time speaking up for those affected by sin, for those affected by sin. And some, in some areas, we're really good for, for, for doing things, for, for speaking up, for doing things for those affected by sin. I was so proud of our church with the response that they've given towards the natural disasters in this world. That's a result of sin. These natural disasters are a result of sin, and people are affected by this. And I praise God that we respond to that. But there's other issues, like the issue that we're talking about today, that are more uncomfortable. And so we tend not to be as proactive or, or vocal about these things. But we must not only condemn those actions, but we must also learn to speak up for those affected by the sin. To remove the silence from our churches and provide safe havens for those who are suffering. This, after all, is the biblical model. It's the biblical model of Jesus. The, the, the story of the woman caught in adultery and she's brought before a, a, a group of individuals and these, these, these leaders these are standing around her and they're ready to stone her. They're ready to throw a rock at her. And yes, she was sinning. And yes, she was a sinner. But in that moment, that is a level of abuse. That woman there by herself in the midst of all those threatening individuals. And Jesus, when she did not speak, the Bible doesn't relate to her speaking at all until the very end of the story. She does not speak up. She does not, does not have the ability to speak up, and yet someone does speak up for her. It's Jesus. He speaks up on her behalf. So this is the biblical model of Jesus, to speak up for those who are, who are, who are threatened, who are abused by others. This is the biblical teaching. It's the biblical teaching to, that calls us to do likewise as Jesus did. If you turn in your Bibles to the book of Proverbs, chapter 31. Proverbs chapter 31. Now, Proverbs 31 is a famous text. And why is it a famous text? What is Proverbs 31? What do we know about Proverbs 31? It's the, the, the story of a virtuous what? Woman. And... Uh, we read Proverbs chapter 31, and there's ministries of Proverbs 31 woman, and it talks about the woman who is praised at the city gates, and the woman who stays up late working on the clothes for her children, and the woman who makes the meal and has it always ready for the family. You can tell that this text was written by a man. 
Uh, but we value all those, those things for sure. But it, but it describes this, this righteous, virtuous woman. But before it gets to that section of Proverbs 31, there, there's, another, there's other verses in that chapter. And I want us to look at Proverbs chapter 31, beginning in verse 8. The Bible tells us this. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. For the rights of all who are destitute. When you've gone through an abusive situation you oftentimes cannot speak of it. You do not know how to speak up for yourself. The Bible says speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. When you've gone through an, a, 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 an abusive situation, whether as a child or as, a, as, an, as an adult even, you oftentimes do not know how to verbalize that, how to vocalize that. Maybe you're embarrassed, maybe you're shamed, maybe you feel somehow that it's your fault, especially when you are young. You don't know how to speak up for yourself. You are, in fact, in those moments, the destitute one. There's a, there's, there's a destitute feeling that accompanies abuse. There's, there's a feeling of a, of a lack of love, a lack of safety, a lack of protection. There's, there's, you're destitute of these things that you should have in your life when you are abused. And I don't say this from hearsay. I speak of it from, from personal experience. I didn't talk about the abuse that happened in my life until I was about 20 years old sitting on the couch of a therapist. I didn't talk to my parents about it. I didn't talk to anybody about it. Because what do you say? How do you, how do you speak of this as a, as a man, as a young person? And I didn't even talk about it publicly until about nine years ago, about the effects that it has on things. When you have gone through abuse, there's, there's a part of you that feels, I can never speak of this at all. You are a person that is voiceless. And the Bible calls us to be individuals that, that will speak up to speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for those who are destitute in some way. And it's not just talking about the destitute here financially. It's talking about those who feel destitute of love, destitute of safety, destitute of, of security in their life, destitute of, of support and trust in their life. We are to speak up for all of these things. Imagine even worse for a child who has gone through an abusive situation. How do they verbalize it? The Bible calls us to speak up on their behalf, to give them voice. Maybe we give them voice by being the ones that will speak for them and, and say this is wrong and, and speak about how there can be help out there. But, but, but also, uh, that w as we speak about it, maybe it will help them find their voice so that they can too speak about it. Then verse nine of Proverbs 31, chapter 31 reads this. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. When I think of defending the rights of an individual, this is not just sitting on our couch and seeing something happen and saying, you know what, they should have the rights to do that. They should have the right to, to speak freely. They should have the right to live in safety. It, it, it's to, to truly biblically speak up and defend the rights of the individual and, and to make sure that we judge fairly is also to take action. 
It doesn't help a person for us to sit back and say, you know what, that's not right. They should feel safe there, but then for us not to do anything to make someone feel safe. Everybody has the right to feel safe and protected. Everyone has the right to feel that there is a place where they can be supported and loved and valued. And we can say that, but if we don't actually take action, we don't actually do things to to make that a reality, then that speaking has no ultimate value for that person's life. Part of defending a person's rights is also to make it a reality for those rights to be in that person's life. Jacob knew his daughter had been defiled, the Bible said, and he chose silence. It's interesting because in in Genesis chapter 34, that word defiled, which means violated, humiliated, forced to lay with, raped, that word that means all of these grotesque things is, is mentioned, is used over and over and over again in chapter 34. The majority of the commentaries I read focus on what the brother's response was and the ultimate result of that response, how it brought bitterness within the land. Yet the writer of the Bible references that word over and over and over again. And one of the things that I was taught when I was in in seminary and when I was doing exegesis is find words that repeat themselves and, and see if there's some point behind this. The Bible, the author of, that, of the text, obviously wanted us to be clear that what had happened to Dinah was unacceptable. Was unacceptable. The commentaries focus on the results of the brother, but the Bible wanted us to recognize this issue. And yet, throughout the whole story, Jacob never speaks. The comment, several of the commentaries mention this, and they have different reasons for it. I like what Dukan says, that, that the silence shows maybe something that was in his heart, some cowardice or some prejudice or some indifference or, or some lack of moral conscience, uh, in, maybe in potentially in some way. But, but Jacob is silent during the whole story, and the only time he speaks is at the very end when he says to his sons, look at the problems you've caused for me within our world. Look at the problems you caused for me. Nothing about the daughter, nothing about the wrong done to her. Look at the problems you've caused for me because of your actions. Jacob's knew his daughter had been defiled and he chose silence. We must make sure that we as a church never choose silence of any fashion within this church. In, that, in the Adventist Review, in, a, in, a, in another section, they had some practical suggestions. In another article, they had some practical suggestions on how to speak up for the victims of sin. The first suggestion they had was to talk about it from the pulpit, to talk about it from the pulpit, to, to preach about that, that there is bu- abuse within our society and there's, and there's abuse even within the church and we need to recognize and acknowledge it and let people know who have gone through that, that we, we know that is out there and we want to be a place of help. Some people say, well, is this really the appropriate place for a sermon? I'll admit, the very first time I preached about this three years ago, I actually asked myself, is this really a topic that we should be, be preaching on? But, but I began to think about, especially in light of that stat, as I, was, as I was thinking on this this week and what I was gonna preach about, in light of that stat that 42% of women report some sort of physical abuse in their life. And as I thought about that stat, I thought about this. I thought, if 42% a, a, a group of individuals, 42% of some individuals within my church said, you know what, I don't know if I believe in the Sabbath. 
then we would say as a Sabbatarian group, man, we need to preach about the Sabbath. We need to make sure that we're communicating about the Sabbath. If 42% of, of the, the individual, of a certain group of individuals in our church were having adultery, someone would come to me and say, man, pastor, we got to talk about the wrongs of adultery. We need to speak out against that within our society. Well, if 42% of individuals, females within, our, within the church, within the Seventh-day Adventist church, have reported that they've experienced some sort of violence of this nature in their life, then is this any less important than speaking about the Sabbath or about adultery? No. We address what is affecting the people to let them know that we, that we hear and we care. So we do that. Another suggestion there in the review was sponsor workshops, seminars to address all kinds of issues that are related to abuse or avoiding and preventing further abuse. And that's one of the reasons why we're having the seminar uh, this afternoon for uh, you to, to help your children learn to communicate about abuse and also to help them help and how to communicate with your children about abuse so that they can hopefully avoid it in their life. And that's from two to four and we hope that you will, will come to that. We just hosted an event here at our church from the North American Division a week ago, training pastors on how to recognize the signs of abuse. The North American Division did a fabulous job. This is an issue, folks. One in seven boys, the reports tell us, suffer abuse in their life, and one in four girls suffer abuse in their life. It's something that we need to learn to communicate about in a real and an honest way. There was a story I read about an abuse situation that happened within a small Adventist church community. The husband and wife had been raised Adventists, but they were no longer Adventists. The, uh, there were issues, there was abuse that had been going on the church was aware of it. The parents of the young man and, and the young woman still attended that local church. And so they were aware of the situation. They were aware of what was going on. And ultimately, this, this husband, who was a doctor, tried to actually have his wife killed, the highest level of abuse possible. Well, the story reported that the local church was trying to decide what they could do to help in the situation. And as the story reports there that I read, the Adventist church said, you know what? Let's give them the book, Steps to Christ. Folks, that's the type of thing that we need to, now I love Steps to Christ, I've read it more than any other book I've ever read probably other than the Bible, but but, but that's what we, because we do not learn how to communicate about these issues in a way that's practical and helpful, because we've not provided safe environments in which we can have open dialogue and honest dialogue, we say, well, 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 we'll help them. Jesus will help them. Yes, we understand that Jesus will help them. Let's give them a book, Steps to Christ, and maybe this will kind of calm things down. The story said that the local Baptist church provided this family with food every single day for months on end. You can guess where they attend church now. We need to learn how to address these issues, to have these conversations. 
The review shared that, that we need to be able to provide outside resources, shelters, counselors. You know, we as pastors are not trained at the level to handle these situations. In fact, probably at times in history, we've not done a great job of handling this. I know from my own self that, that, that two classes on pastoral counseling, one in seminary and one in undergraduate, uh, at the undergraduate level are not adequate to deal with some of the issues going on. So we need to have resources within our church and we do have those resources that we can refer you to. We have even individuals within this church that are trained to help you walk through the process of getting the support that you need. And you can find information about that out at the end and now table out there. But I think as a larger congregation, one of the things we need to do is recognize that this is an issue. To see that it is real and to begin to speak up and say something of love and support to these people. Jacob knew that his daughter had been defiled and he chose silence. As followers of Jesus Christ, our model is Jesus Christ. And Jesus is always one that speaks up on behalf of the helpless. He speaks up on behalf of the helpless that know they're helpless, and he speaks up on behalf of those that don't always think we're so helpless. Jesus speaks up for us. Just in my own personal journey, I can tell you this, for those of you that have suffered through this, that, that, that as I've grown in my relationship with Christ and as I've, as I've connected to him, even at moments when I didn't feel that I could talk to anybody else, there was still that reality that, that as, I, as, I, as I discovered Jesus' love, there was a, a freedom that I began to feel. Freedom from the guilt, freedom from the shame, freedom from some of these things. God even got me to the point where I could forgive and I sent a letter to one of the individuals that, 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 that caused harm in my life. Now, I didn't forget and I didn't trust ever again, but I did get to the place where I could release that anger. And that was only through that relationship with Jesus Christ. And I want us to be a church so it doesn't take folk those 20 years or whatever it is to, to get to that place where they can come to that, but we can be a place where as Christ followers, we will always speak up on your behalf and the things that you're going through. Let us never, let it never be said of us that we were found silent in the face of such a sinful scourge affecting so many within our own community. Jacob was silent. Let us always have a voice to speak for the voiceless. Let us pray. Jesus, you, you, you and you alone are the great comforter but you've called us as a body of believers to represent you rightly. You've called us to be a voice for the voiceless. You've called us to defend the rights of those in need. So Lord, just as we bring awareness to this situation and as we look to, to be a resource for people, help this church to be a safe place for people to be real, to be honest, to be transparent, Help this to be a safe place for people to know that, that they are loved in spite of what has happened in their past, whether it's of their own doing or it's the doing of someone else. Lord, forgive us where we have come up short in this area. Bridge the gaps where we do not know 
what to do. And Lord, above all, to anybody that is going through this, and I know there are some, Lord, I pray that you'll put your arms around them in a way that only you can, that you will send someone into their life, the right person, the right individual, to help them as they journey through this into knowing that they are loved and valued by the Most High God. In your name we pray, amen.